This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Let's look at the organization of religious societies. This is really where Wesley now takes over from Whitfield and begins to really create an organization. Uh, if there's anything we can say about Wesley, it was that he was an organizational genius. He knew how to organize people and organize institutions. Uh, he recognized that uh, he was not quite uh, with Whitfield, and when they broke, he decided to set up various religious societies, and he created a network of religious societies. In England at this time, there were a number of religious societies, but they weren't connected. So what Wesley does is he begins to affiliate, create societies, and make them network with one another to work out and to create unity. Uh, in order to ensure, you still see a, a very strong Moravian sort of tendency at this point, he wants to make sure that the people who come to these various religious societies are true Christians. He's very concerned about that. He issues what he calls society tickets. Society tickets. These are little pieces of paper, tickets, which in which uh, it has been judged by Wesley that the person who holds this ticket is spiritually mature. Don't you just love it? Wouldn't you like to have a ticket that says you're spiritually mature? And everyone uh, needed to receive one of these tickets in order to participate in the religious society. Uh, sometimes people were given a ticket on a, on, a, on a temporary basis, a trial basis, to see if they really were mature, not in the judgment of the leader. And every year, every quarter, every quarter, all society tickets had to be renewed that is, you had to be reevaluated if you as to whether or not you were spiritually mature. So he has this idea of spiritual uh, 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 society tickets, uh, and the purpose, of course, is to try to have a pure society, which is, I mean, that that you can see a little bit of a Moravian sort of tendency here about having everybody be pure and and uh, right. Michael. There, there were all offerings, yes, there were, uh, and um, no, not that I can tell. No, I don't. I don't think Wesley was that sort okay. at all. I'll mention some of the things as we go along here, the, the, the kinds of things that were supposed to characterize mature Christians. So he had the society tickets. He also divided each religious society into subgroups. He called them classes. And he put them, they were to be no more than 12 people. 
little cells, if you will, with a leader over them. And the leader was the one who collected money uh, from his cell group of 12. And it's, very, it's a very cohesive group. When you get down to 12 people, you have a leader and you have 12 followers. You develop real intimacy. And he developed real allegiances uh, to one another and, and a great deal of cohesiveness. In 1743, he drew up the rules for the Methodist societies. In 1743. Uh, and he set out these uh, moral rules. If you were to be uh, a regular attender with a spiritual ticket or a society ticket for these Methodist societies, you were not to be involved in drunkenness or fighting, unprofitable conversation, or have racy literature. So there's a moralistic sort of a flavor here. Uh, don't drink uh, and don't go with girls who do. Uh, they also had some pretty strong social implications. Uh, members of these cell groups were to do things like uh, feed the hungry, find ways to provide clothing for the poor, make sure you're on the lookout for sick people and try to help them. So there's a social uh, uh, element to these societies. They're to look out for the poor. Like you please, you need to make sure that, that you understand Wesley's heart is, is that he wants to have a really true Christian group of people who are trying to do some of the basic things Christians ought to do, like minister to the poor and the sick. You have to admire this. And uh, there was a, a real concern about personal holiness in these groups. They were to do uh, engage in fasts, uh, lots of praying and lots of reading of Scripture and so forth. Wesley also developed uh, circuits, he called them. These are geographical regions. He called them circuits. We might call them parishes. And he assigned uh, two leaders to each circuit. One of the leaders was to be a traveling preacher to go to all of the religious societies within his geographical circuit and to travel from religious house to religious house to religious house overseeing the spiritual uh, levels of the people and to preach to them. And there's also uh, a sort of a, you didn't call him a bishop, but a, but a leader who sort of oversaw and was responsible for the welfare of each of those religious societies within that circuit. So there was a traveling preacher and there was a, an overall leader of each circuit. You get the impression now that, that, that Wesley is very, very organized? That's, that's, what, that's the picture I want you to get. Now one of the interesting things we need to appreciate about uh, John Wesley's Methodism is that he was always an Anglican. He never left the Anglican church. He was ordained an Anglican and he died an Anglican. He did not at any point in his life formally separate from the Anglican church. His view was that these religious societies were with 
in the Anglican Church. Uh, it's not exactly a parachurch movement, but an intra-church movement, a church within a church kind of movement. He's trying to renew it. He's trying to change the, the Anglican Church. So he did not intend his movement to be independent of the one Anglican Church. But inevitably, all of this very uh, developed organization had a tendency to separate and to isolate these Methodists from the Anglican Church at large. And so you find a series of events in the, in the uh, 40s and 50s and 60s that suggest that Wesley's movement is creeping ever ever so much away from the church. It's a separate, it's a group with a separate identity formally within the church, but there are a series of events that occur which suggest they're moving away from the Anglican church. Just mention some of these. In 1744, these Wesleyan Methodists have their own conference. Again, this idea of a self Identity is emerging. Uh, in 1763, they formulate their own doctrinal statement. That's peculiar for an, for an intra-church. 1763, Wesley writes his own doctrinal statement for his religious society, his his uh, Methodist movement. Uh, that's in contrast uh, to the 39 Articles. And then in 1784, Wesley, even though he was not a bishop, formally ordained a minister, a guy named Thomas Coke. So he's, in some ways, Wesley is, is and his organization is functioning semi-independently from the mother church although formally it is still very much within the Anglican church uh, Wesley for the rest of his life said we are Anglicans and he never moved from that he felt the Anglican church needed some help and he was going to give it by establishing these religious societies uh, but note he died in 1791 and in 1795, there was a formal split and the creation of a denomination called Methodists. 1795, just four years after his death. I think it's fair to say that he had set this, this intra-church organization on the path towards separation from the mother church. But he himself had not done it, had, did not actually separate but once he died, it was just a few years before there's a separate organization, a separate denomination. Two controversies I want to mention, and I'll be pretty brief here. Two major theological controversies swirled around Wesley. The first was a doctrine of perfection. Uh, Wesley had a tendency to talk about, he used this phrase quite a bit called Christian perfection. He used that language and said that ought to be the case for us. 
And to a lot of people, it seemed as if he was advocating uh, a, what, a very odd notion uh, of perfectionism, that one could attain sinlessness in this life. Uh, Wesley was actually confronted by this by the Anglican Bishop Edmund Gibson. And he called Wesley on the carpet in 1740. And Wesley defended himself and said, I do not believe that one can become perfectly sinless in this life. He says, I do not advocate absolute perfection. He says, I advocate Christian perfection. Which means that one can make real progress. One should have uh, distinctively a distinctively different moral life than a non-Christian. And, and I think it's fair to say that he probably had, if not exactly a perfectionist in the absolute sense of saying we can become sinless, he did believe in something that we might call a higher life kind of idea where we can we can make real progress towards that if not attaining perfect sinlessness we can get fairly close if we're if we work hard at it and are pious and fast and pray and read our bibles and all of that so uh, some in fact some of his followers didn't like this language of christian perfection and preferred another term christian sanctification uh, but he continued to use Christian perfection quite a bit. And there was lots of misunderstanding. And I think what we have, in fact, is someone, in, in, in Wesley's case, who was not technically a full-blooded perfectionist. But there were certain perfectionistic tendencies that created problems for folk. I don't think that's distinctively reformed. I think the, the, the reformed view is that there should be progress in the Christian life. Uh, but there's struggle all the way. I mean, Romans 7 is, 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 is a passage that we believe in. And that there is, there is struggle in the Christian life. And even, even, you know, someone who's been a Christian for 50 years will still be struggling with sin of one sort or another. That's inevitable. But what we, what we, the whole idea of sanctification is, is that there is progress in the Christian life. We don't stay babes. There is a level of... There's, there ought to be significant growth. Uh, can it be that God saves someone and it make no difference? Can that be? And I, as a Reformed person, I have to say no. There's got to be a, a chain. Uh, so my conclusion then about this controversy is it's probably unfair to charge Wesley with perfectionism in the fullest sense of the term, but I'm also... I sense there is a lurking uh, tendency toward that also in him. The other major doctrine about which there was a, a great deal of controversy was the doctrine of predestination. Uh, what's interesting is that Wesley had, I mean, a violent reaction to this. And scholars speculate that part of the reason for this violent reaction is John Wesley's mother, Susanna, who also had a real aversion to this doctrine and continued throughout her life to exercise real influence on John Wesley. He felt 
Wesley did under the influence of his mom that the doctrine of predestination would destroy preaching. It must have seemed rather ironic that the greatest preacher, the most successful preacher of the era, believed in predestination, namely his friend John uh, George Whitfield. Uh, Wesley did have a belief in predestination, but it was a predestination based on foreknowledge, that God looked down the corridors of time and saw those who would believe, and then on the basis of what they did, God would then subsequently elect them. So he did have a doctrine of predestination, but it was a predestination based on foreknowledge. Just another thing to mention here about his own kind of view, and this this lets you know uh, what a strong person uh, Wesley was. He established a magazine called The Arminian. Uh, He was and liked to be called and known as an Arminian theologically. But in 1778, he published The Arminian Magazine, to counter uh, those efforts of the Calvinists. Just a note here. Uh, In the Methodist revival, we can see three groups who were touched by Whitfield-Wesley revival of this period. First, we can see the Wesleyan Methodists. They emerge, and Methodism really sees it goes back there. There's also the Calvinistic Methodists. Uh, When Whitfield refused to fight with Wesley, a number of the people didn't like his his Arminianism. And so they went off and formed their own denomination called the Calvinistic Methodists. And I did mention the uh, one lady called the Countess of Huntingdon, H-U-N-T, I-N-G-D-O-N the Countess of Huntingdon she was a very strong supporter of Whitfield and she was instrumental in supporting uh, the Calvinist Methodists those who broke away from Wesley and who in that, in that battle between Wesley and Whitfield they took the Calvinistic direction and he took the Arminian direction and a third group so we've got got the Wesleyan, Arminian Methodists, and the Calvinistic Methodists of Lady Huntington, or Countess Huntington. And then you have some evangelical Anglicans who were also touched by this, and who, who were in which, for whom there was also revival. So know those three groups, Wesleyan Methodists, Calvinistic Methodists, and evangelical Anglicans. Now, I'll... Uh, I'll look at Wesley and women here just for a few minutes. Uh, I've already said that Wesley's marriage was uh, less than ideal. Uh, He seemed to have a number of problems throughout his life with with women. Uh, I've already mentioned Sophie Hopke, how that uh, relationship ended tragically. But there was another romantic interlude for Wesley. During an illness, he was nursed back to health by a young lady by the name of Grace Murray up here. And Wesley was quite taken with Grace. Uh, He made her his personal secretary and she traveled with him uh, on his preaching tours as his secretary. And then in 1749, 
uh, they decided to get engaged and then married. But, it's interesting to note, and again you see a sort of mystical, maybe Moravian kind of influence coming to bear here. John and Charles Wesley had made a pact early on. And the pact was this, that the other brother had to approve the marriage partner of the, the other brother. So, the fact that John was interested in Grace Murray, in order for that marriage to, to take place, Charles needed to put his stamp of approval on it. Okay? And that the two brothers had, had made this agreement early on, that the other would, would have to put his stamp of approval on the relationship. Now, it's pretty clear that John was quite enamored with grace. Some have said this was the true love of his life. But Charles got to know her and did not like her and did not approve of Grace Murray to marry John Wesley. It seems that Charles Wesley felt that she was of a, a too much of a lower class person, came from a lower class than they. And so for, for whatever reason, if that, that may have been part of it, did not approve of the marriage. And so guess what Charles did? Unbeknownst to John, Charles went to Grace Murray and demanded that she break the engagement. And we don't know what Charles said to her, but she did. She broke the engagement. And she never explained why. She then went off and married someone else. John Wesley was crushed. Uh, and it also created a little bit of hostility between John and Charles. Uh, this preemptive strike by Charles Wesley had a, a very negative effect on John's subsequent uh, marital relationship. The next time John fell for a young lady, he didn't tell Charles for fear that Charles might try to interfere. And uh, what he did is he went out and married uh, a lady by the name of Mrs. Uh, Vaziel, I guess. Vaziel or whatever. V-A-Z-E-I-L-L-E -L -L -E in 1751. Married her and consummated the marriage before Charles ever found out anything about it. It was one of the worst mistakes John Wesley ever made. She was uh, a widow. She had been the wife of a sailor who had been lost at sea. Uh, some people sarcastically suggested that she was such a nag that her sailor husband committed suicide and threw himself over the edge. It turns out the new Mrs. John Wesley was insanely jealous. I mean, wacko jealous. She continually read his mail looking for incriminating evidence. She publicly accused him of infidelity on numerous occasions. Wesley began taking longer and longer preaching tours away from home. <laughs> And finally, 
a few years later, they separated. Did not divorce, but separated. And even upon her death, Wesley's comments in his journal are very cold and detached. She had made his life a mess. (laughs) And he didn't forget it. Uh, He died... In March of 1792, John Wesley did. Uh, And on his deathbed, his last letter was to William Wilberforce. W-I-L-B-E-R-F-O-R-C-E. Wilberforce was a very famous Christian statesman in England. And he is famous for having been the person who persuaded Parliament to abolish slavery. And the last letter written by Wesley is written to encourage Wilberforce in his rejection of slavery. And so, unlike Whitfield, who employed slaves on his orphanage in Georgia, uh, Wesley uh, vehemently opposed slavery. And in fact, he'd even written a book on that early on. And he and Wilberforce uh, were in cahoots on this a little bit. Anyway, that's, uh, I don't have much to say about Charles Wesley. You know that he was a great hymn writer. Uh, <laughs> I don't have much to say about him. And now we want to move to the American continent and look at the Great Awakening in general, Jonathan Edwards and some of his cohorts, and then end up in Princeton uh, and looking at the so-called Princeton theology, at least briefly today. Uh, Because I have a fair amount of material as usual, and I always, what happens when I get down to the end of the semester, I have, there's always so much I haven't covered, and so I have to push. So I'm going to ask if we can kind of hang on to our questions and let me get as far as I can today and cover what I have to cover. First, the historical context. When uh, Jonathan Edwards reached his uh, manhood in about in the 1720s, the religion in New England was essentially a nominal Christianity. What's interesting is that New England had been so vital a generation before. Uh, There were people who had left the old country because of persecution, and they had come to America, and particularly to New England, to establish a city on a hill to provide a righteous example to that church back in England of what could be done if Puritan principles were followed through. The people who came to New England felt persecuted, and so they had left the Church of England. It was not reforming as quickly as they would have hoped. But what happened is that within a few generations, uh, this spiritual flabbiness that I talked about 
began to occur in Puritan New England. This is so important for us people who call themselves Reformed. Here we are in a Reformed context. The culture is Reformed and Puritan. This reminds us that we have to be ever vigilant. Our theology has to be vital. It cannot be mere intellectual assent to a set of propositions. As vital and as important as that is, it cannot be merely assent to propositions. It's got to penetrate to the heart. And that, it seems, is what did not happen. Without that persecution that Puritans had experienced in England, there was a spiritual apathy that set in. And you know what the worst thing that happened as well? Prosperity. England, excuse me, New England, after a couple of generations, the people had established their their businesses and their farms, and there was a, a fairly high degree of material prosperity. And it does seem to be the case all too often that when you're doing well financially, there seems to be, and again, not all the time, but a tendency to decline spiritually. And we can see that in the New England culture. With a lack of persecution, material prosperity, you have spiritual apathy beginning to set in. In addition, that made them receptive to some of these, these newer notions coming from the continent, like deism began to influence the colonies and the age of reason settled as well in the states. So what you have is the strict Calvinism of the earlier New England clergy giving way to a religion which emphasizes man's ability to think and to reason and to handle his problems. Now, to be sure, I don't want to paint a picture that's unrealistic because there were still vital elements uh, of Christianity still uh, burning bright in parts and places of New England. But what we see in the time of the early 18th century is a decline in, in spiritual growth and maturity and, a, and an increase in this spiritual apathy. We see it, for example, at Yale uh, and Harvard. Two institutions that we can see from this educational perspective had originally been founded with some very clear-cut spiritual principles to guide them in their education. Suddenly, within a couple of generations, Harvard is being infected with uh, this new age of reason, this, this, this rationalistic tendency that's imported from Europe. Same thing at Yale. And neither Yale nor Harvard have been the, have been the same since. Uh, Christianity, when it becomes formal, uh, merely when it becomes merely formal, we've set uh, created a climate for spiritual apathy. Before the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards himself spoke of what he called the extraordinary dullness in religion in the North east part of the United States. And it was in this climate 
of spiritual decline that the Great Awakening occurred. The time was, in the providence of God, ripe. And there was a new kind of preaching that began to occur. Passionate preaching. Consciences were pricked. There was a conviction of sin. A call for repentance. And a reminder of what the new birth really is. Those kinds of ideas were beginning to re-emerge once again in the time of Jonathan Edwards. So, what I've just tried to say is to set the historical setting, set the context, a period of increasing spiritual decline, a dullness in religion, as Edwards called it. Now let's look at the first stirrings of revival. We sometimes think that the Great Awakening simply, wham, occurred uh, without any warning. Not so. There were a number of local revivals that had sort of dotted the map for about uh, five, ten years before the Great Awakening occurred. Uh, We know, for example, that there were a number of, quote, local revivals in Northampton where Edward's grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, here his dates are, 1643 to 1729, there were some local revivals. uh, People coming to know the Lord in a deeper way, a rejection of the spiritual apathy, uh, talk about the new birth, for example, a conviction of sin and repentance. My key point here in in mentioning these persons is to just note that the Great Awakening did not occur in a vacuum. There was a context. And the context was spiritual decline and then some stirrings, some local revivals that preceded it. We see it first in Stoddard and then in a Dutch... Tim, you'll appreciate this. A Dutch Reformed uh, person by the name of Theodore Freelinghausen, F-R-E-L-I-N-G-H-U-Y-S-E-N, 1691 to 1748. George Whitfield said of Freelinghausen, he was the, quote, the beginner of the great work namely the Great Awakening. Uh, Freelinghausen was a Dutchman born uh, near the Dutch border, educated in Holland and ordained by the Dutch Reformed Church. And he was sent to the United States or to America in 1719, and you'll like this, to serve as a pastor for four churches in New Jersey. So he had responsibility for four separate congregations. I'm not quite sure how he did that. Uh, but he's Dutch. <laughs> you, that's right. <laughs> that explains it. One of the things I think, too, is interesting for me, just as a history is, is, is enlightening and helpful to us, uh, there, there is a general misconception that reform kinds of thinking 
uh, leads to deadness. What we find here in the Great Awakening, and with Frelinghausen in particular, we find that Reformed theology and revival go together. They are not antithetical. And here we have, we're going, in fact, we have three or four major examples of where deep convictions about Reformed theology uh, works hand-in-hand hand with true spiritual revival. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that. They go together. The head and the heart go together. Reformed theology and vital Christianity, they must go together. Anyway, four churches. Frelinghausen is uh, what some might call uh, uh, a Dutch precisionist. A precisionist is someone is is not unlike a Puritan, a Dutch Puritan, but that's the technical term that is applied to the the sort of Puritan movement among the Dutch. They're called Dutch precisionists. That's a good thing to know about Frelinghausen. Incidentally, that originally comes this Dutch precisionism, this Dutch Puritanism comes via England and is sort of an offshoot of the English Puritan movement. And it was brought to the Dutch by a man named William Ames. A-M-E-S. I don't... Yeah, I have that up here. A-M-E-S. And he brought some of these Puritan ideas to Holland. At any rate, Frelinghausen, a committed Calvinist, was also deeply concerned about piety. And he went to his congregations in New Jersey and he discovered something that he didn't like. He saw that his four congregations lacked any real deep-seated Christian piety, nor did they have any deep-seated convictions. They just signed the doctrinal statement and yawned. They believed what their daddy told them to believe. It was a formal kind of Christianity. And this obviously is, is a problem. I think of this, um, I worry about this personally. Uh, you see this scenario again and again and again. The father and the mother perhaps struggle. They have a crisis in their lives. They become a Christian and they struggle to be Christians. It's, it's a matter of life and death for them. There's a real serious conversion. They have children. The children grow up, and for them what's normal is a Christian home. And all elements of struggle don't, don't seem to be quite so relevant. Things are, are provided for them. They're taken to church every Sunday. And so Christianity becomes no big deal. Christians grow up, and of course, they go to church. I mean, that's what they were raised to do. But there's no spark. There's no uh, that vitality. And then they give birth to children who have even less vitality than they. And I think it's one of the great challenges for Christians today. 
parents to somehow communicate that vitality. You, you can't just let it sort of assume that your children will, by taking them to church or in Sunday school and doing all these kinds of religious things, that somehow that will take care of their spiritual needs. They've got to somehow get that vitality. And you as a parent, as a Sunday school teacher, as a pastor, need to be concerned about that. Real vitality, not simply going through the motions. We have too much of that. We need to fight, struggle for a vital Christianity. And I tell you, uh, my daughter is growing up in a one. She's having a wonderful childhood. I ask her sometimes. I say, "I say, Allie, how's your childhood going?" And she looks at me with strange look in her eyes. Uh, but my fear is that she's having such a wonderful childhood, and I'm such a great parent, you see, that she's not. She, there's, she's not having to struggle to believe in Christ. And I and I and I I think and I ponder how can I make this vital for her? I know the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Tim. I know that the Holy Spirit has to work, and that's that's the bottom line. But I need to be a responsible parent. I don't want to be like those those folk in New England who simply got into the mode of, of going to church and that somehow that was that was deemed adequate. It's not. A church is vital to our lives, but the home may be even more important. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.